This is episode one of Eager Feet, a conversational podcast where we journey from the mundane to the sublime and back. I'm Cameron Surrey, a lay chaplain at the Auckland Catholic Tertiary Chaplaincy, 110 Simon Street. And we're here in the chaplaincy lounge, known to students as the Pit of Lies. Today, we're in conversation with Mr. Mark Bond, a PhD student at the University of Auckland. Mark has a BA in English and Psychology from Auckland. He has studied theology, and he also has a MA in English from the University of Waikato. His PhD thesis is examining male mobility and entrapment in post-World War II US fictions. So Mark, tell me, your PhD is on male mobility, cars. What's your own experience with cars? Cars you've owned or cars that you wish that you could own? Uh, yeah, no, um, I, I consider it quite ironic that, you know, here I am writing an entire PhD on, on automobiles and I wouldn't know the first thing about cars. Um, but I do have a favorite that, I mean, my ideal car um, would, would be a Tesla. I, I love them. Yeah. Um, so Tesla um, Model S would probably be my, my first choice. Um, and, you know, I do, I do enjoy the aesthetic of a, of a sleek car, like kind of the Aston Martin type cars. Um, unfortunately, I own a 2006 Honda Civic. Uh, so the, the reality, uh, as I kind of uh, talk about in, in my PhD, the reality is often not as glamorous as the ideal. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's very economical, so, so I don't mind it. But um, yeah, in terms of the whole mechanical side, my dad's very good at kind of doing the um, uh, fixing up of the cars. Um, mm. But I know, even to change a tire, I don't think I'd be too good at that. Right, and so given that, how did you come upon this theme of men and their cars for your PhD? I think it's because um, I'm far more fascinated by the way we, and I, I understand that's a bit problematic, um, you know, I don't mean to imply that um, everyone thinks the same way, but particularly in Western society, automobiles and men have this um, kind of cultural link uh, and, and ha have had that link for quite, quite some time. So. I'm fascinated in the way cars function, how they function in society, not just as tools, because we don't treat them just as tools. Mm. Uh, they, they are these symbols uh, for things that the, you know, don't necessarily need to be um, synonymous with, with the car itself. So um, the example I like to put out there, um, although it's a bit crude, is that kind of... Um, assumption of, you know, men who drive big cars, you know, and they say, oh, are you overcompensating for something? And it's, th these kind of um, thoughts have pervaded the way we think, um, and yet there's no real relationship between automobiles as they exist and men's bodies as they exist. And so I was quite, quite fascinated in that link between them. Um, so, yeah, and it also came out of this uh, exploration of masculinity as as uh, as a whole. Um, I had started off with a far too um, general focus on 
um, kind of white heterosexual masculinity in the U.S. after World War II, and when that proved to be too large, um, I decided cars would be a really good focusing tool. Uh, that would. So some of the material you'd drawn from was already related to cars. Yeah, um, you know, I certainly talked about kind of um, men using cars as symbols and tools uh, in the likes of John Updike's novel Rabbit Run, uh, which I believe was in the 60s, um, and the likes of uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which says a lot about cars as much as it does about masculinity. So <clears throat> those explorations were, were there, and I basically, uh, when I revisited those texts, um, after I had kind of refocused my, uh, my thesis, I went just further in-depth into the way that the cars function mm. um, themselves. So you sent me a short piece of your work and the main uh, piece of literature, or in this case movie, it focuses on is called The Hitchhiker, 1953. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'd recommend uh, anyone interested to look that up on, on YouTube because it's, it's all there, uh, free to watch. Um, so The Hitchhiker is a movie about a bit of a psychopathic murderer who um, preys on people driving their cars and pretends to be this hitchhiker. And in this case, um, we've got these two men who are getting away from their life of work and their family life in the city, and they're going for a nice drive, and they're going to be away for a few days, and they can be free. And so you've got this whole theme of men in their cars and freedom and that this is I guess a vision of the good life for for the American man post World War II. But it's turned upside down of course because they stop to pick up this actually he doesn't appear as a hitchhiker in this case really uh, it looks like he's broken down or mm. he's run out of gas or something and so in a way and it's at night time they were bound to stop because yep. they wouldn't have just driven past a guy like that. So no. they were probably sort of morally bound to stop. But unfortunately, um, a minute or two after he gets in the car, and he then pulls his pistol on them, and, and they realize they're in a horrible situation, and their car becomes a sort of prison. Yes. Which, um, yeah, and the rest of the movie is about them trying to be free of this. Yeah, man. so the car becomes almost paradox number one. Um, in a list of paradoxes that the film um, explores. Because, it, ironically, the, the, as you say, um, they're getting out on this fishing trip, they're away from their domesticity, because, of course, around the same time uh, that the film was made, uh, men returning home from the war found it a, a little difficult to, mm. to kind of um, go from this hyper violent, hyper-masculine battlefield back into the home mm. and be these uh, stay-at-home, not stay-at-home, but um, these domesticated father figures. Mm. Uh, and, and so here we see Gil and Roy um, temporarily getting away from that. And uh, so the car that then is this tool um, that they use to exercise that freedom. To, to kind of get away from the domestic sphere. 
and yet it then becomes, as you say, um, a prison for them. So it's the, the both a tool for freedom and a tool for entrapment, mm. um, all in one. Because of course, for Emmett Myers, the the um, the hitchhiker himself, um, the car is a tool for freedom, but it's only a tool for freedom at the expense of um, this kind of violent hostage taking. Mm. Um, so so the car isn't really, um, at least to me. The, it's, it's not like the car is its own um, entity in the film that we should really be um, focusing on, but it is certainly a supporting character that, that yeah. provides the um, provides the the kind of catalyst for for all of this um, mm. the, this uh, this drama and entrapment to take place. So Emmett Myers, the villain, he's got his gun, and that's kind of his instrument of power that enables him to basically control the other two characters mm. and to, and he does have a bit of fun along the way you know he he even gets one of them to uh, take his rifle which was, there was the, one of them had brought his rifle in the, in the back of the car and um, gets him to to do some target practice at a can while, while his friend actually holds up the can at mm. a distance and um, so then the theme of the gun comes in, and the gun's this instrument of domination and fear. Mm. Um, and it's not until the very end where there's a disruption in that, and the gun is removed, and suddenly this, this man who was all tough suddenly becomes really pathetic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, an, I guess, another one of the themes flowing through the movie. Oh yes, yeah. So, so what I'm quite interested in is is the use of tools like the gun and the car to augment one's sense of, of masculinity or one's sense of manhood, and um, and I am very careful to kind of phrase it that way, where you know I'm not saying that um, masculinity or manhood is this kind of monolithic, um, you know, tangible thing that we all experience the same way. But for Emmett Myers, for example, um, he's ex his co concept of what a man does or what a man should do um, is is certainly very different to to what Gill and Roy um, have in mind. Because of course, Gill and Roy um, are rooted in their communities. They're um, they're da they're both dads. Um, whereas Emmett Myers is this kind of lone wolf, um, very transient, self-serving, hedonistic, violent uh, man. And so they embody two very different modes of masculinity, and that's why you know with the rifle, um, as you as you mentioned, that would have been we might suppose because of course it's not in the film, um, we might suppose that it would have been used for hunting or um, for protection, mm. uh, and so with that rifle, Gill and Roy could have exercised some sort of male power um, over their surroundings. Um, if they if they decided to hunt or do whatever, and that too is turned against them, uh, and and so you 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 see then that these tools like cars and guns can be either very constructive or destructive, mm. um, depending on the context and how they're wielded. Mm. Mm. So, how do you see um, the the way in which the car or the gun um, augment or um, interact with the male body in, in these cases, because um, that was sort of one of your things you were looking at, and the whole idea of the cyborg 
Mm. Yeah, and that's um, so. So in um, this particular chapter that I'm that I'm looking at in my my thesis, cy when I say cyborg mobility, um, that's kind of borrowing from a sociological idea, um, where wherein we we perceive cars as entities, and that line between the driver and the car is blurred. Um, so it's not to say that people are literally cyborgs, or um, that, I'm, so I'm not using that phrase in a uh, literal sense. It's more like when you um, were to say, oh, that BMW cut me off. It, you know, uh, mm. it's not the BMW that cut you off, the driver cut you off, but we kind of just conflate um, the BMW with the driver in that moment. So the way we, we kind of wrap language around um, cars and, and their drivers, um, kind of lends itself to to this construction of a um, social reality where uh, cyborg drivers uh, exist out on the road. Um, because really, we are engaging with other people when we're out on the road, but fundamentally we are in a car engaging with other cars. Mm. So that's the kind of foundation. And then from there I thought, okay, well how does that relate to men in um, kind of these post-World War II U.S. fictions. And I, especially in the likes of The Hitchhiker, the car becomes a sort of prosthesis um, in more ways than one. So it's, it's both a symbolic addition to Emmett Myers's uh, male power, but it's also a literal um, extension of his reach. So there's a scene in the film where uh, Gil and Roy try to run away at night, and Emmett uh, realizes they're, 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 they're escaping, and, and he gets in the car and uses the headlights to find them. And so he's obviously looking with his eyes out into the darkness, but he, his eyes aren't enough, and so he needs the headlights of the car. And so the headlights, there's a shot of the headlights beaming out into the night, and you get the sense that the headlights are his eyes watching them. And so the car and, and Emmett become this kind of um, fused together entity um, where you're aware, you're, you're absolutely aware that um, they're two different, two separate things. You've got mm. Emmett driving the car, he's using the car. But at the same time, visually, we can't help but, but sense that, um, you know, the car is this, this danger out in the night because of course then he he proceeds to use it to try and hit the the mini comes speeding towards them um, and so Emmett is dangerous only because the car is dangerous mm. when both are used um, or both are incorporated into yeah. that one entity yeah. I was thinking because um, on the one hand there's this functional relationship between um, the man and the machine mm. but there's also uh, Another connection, more on the level of identity, where it's like, do you think that the car or the gun in this case is is sort of portraying um, what, like almost portraying the nature of man, like, or portraying a certain aspect of what it means um, to be human or something like that, maybe by emphasizing something? Yeah, I think, um, I certainly wouldn't give the automobile the kind of uh, symbolic power in the sense that I, I, I wouldn't say that it conveys kind of um, very deep or expansive ontological uh, reality. So it's not like it's saying everything about what it means to be um, a human being. But I think it does communicate um, 
something about how we define ourselves by the external um, or through the external. Uh, I, I think that cars, particularly for, for men, and that's a whole other um, avenue of inquiry as to why I kind of focus on men and not men and women, because of course women do drive, um, but back in the day it was a little different. Um, cars, and not just, I mean, yeah, I think for the purposes of, of clarity I'll stick to cars because we could go on and on about, you know, various other vehicles, but cars in particular have this sense of autonomy, they have a sense of speed and power, mm. and um, that just naturally, especially in the post-war period, lent itself to this um, kind of bolster, yeah, this bolstering of, of masculinity that itself wanted to be fast, powerful, autonomous, right? Go where you want, drive where you want, um, and, and so I think it does say a lot about what particular demographics or particular groups of men wanted. Um, I think it, cars today, um, we could say, um, speak volumes about what we want as a society in the sense that um, we notice that... I, I know this seems very... Uh, or this could seem a little far-reaching, but it's almost as if cars are, are kind of litmus test for um, what we value. Um, in the sense that um, nowadays you see this shift to things like uh, Teslas where it's electric mm. or we yeah. see hybrid cars that we didn't have because our desire to have a greener environment is now being reflected in the cars we drive. Sure. Um, and that's why you also get this stigma of those um, gas-guzzling hummers that, that go around because it's like, oh, you know, it must be driven by some conceited, horrible individual that doesn't care about anyone, um, you know, and, and it's these assumptions that we build around um, pure machines. So they are machines, and, and I think that's why I find them fascinating, because I, I view them as literal pieces of metal with wheels, and for some reason, culturally, they, they have so much uh, more weight than that, and, I'm, and, and so that's why I think, why, why, why do they have that? Yeah, well, I, it makes me think of my car, which is a Toyota Estima, so it's mm -hmm. definitely a people mover, it's a family car. Yeah. And I love the car, I think it's it's a great vehicle because it can take a lot of people, it, the seats can fold down for transporting large objects. Um, never used it for this before, but it could be used for like a, a, a weekend away as a sort of basic yeah. camper. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you could fold the seats down and have a reasonably uncomfortable bed. <laughs> Yeah, that would work. Um, so maybe when my children are a bit older, <laughs> there's, there's a possibility for um, a couple of nights away with my wife. But uh, so for, for me currently, like that's the ultimate car. I, would, mm. I wouldn't want a muscle car or a fast car or anything like that. I'm really happy with my steamer. Because mm, just out of curiosity, so do you think that, let's say, right, you pull up... Um, to an intersection and some observer is, is watching you and you pull up in your esteemer, would that observer's perception of you change if you pulled up in a Lamborghini? Oh, for sure. Definitely. You know, so what, you, what, what about it would change? 
What would they think compared to um, you know you driving in a steamer? I can only base it on what I would think if I mm -hmm. were a pedestrian. Sure. And a couple, few times I've seen people driving these super sports cars, especially around town. Mm -hmm. And you think they're in a 50k zone and they're driving a thing that can go you know 300 and something. Yeah. And to me it seems like huge expense and all this engineering and effort that's gone into creating this extremely powerful machine that in effect functionally does the same thing mm -hmm. but um, obviously it speaks of um, wealth and status and well, no, it's not just wealth it's like this person has the tenacity to use their wealth mm -hmm. for something like this yes yeah. and that's where um, you know I mean it is again some people might not see this as a um, straightforward comparison but to me it, it, it's almost as if uh, someone that goes to the gym to kind of have this hypertrophy looking um, musculature right um, so so a man goes to the gym so he can look specifically so that he can look extremely muscular does that mean he's going to um, you know does he lift huge weights for a living probably not um, the point is that he could right he, he looks as if he could do a lot uh, with his muscles and and that's kind of maybe where where that's coming from with a Lamborghini it's like yes it can't go you know uh, what 100 what's that 200 300 k's an hour mm. um, but it's the fact that it could that matters yeah right and I think you when you're driving a car like that even when you're only going 50 or 70 or 100 mm -hmm. you can still feel the potential mm -hmm. to go 360 yeah and maybe it's similar with um, with the guy who's bulked up. Mm. Maybe he's not having to use his bulk or his strength um, very often, but whenever he's doing even normal things, he, he knows that he's just cruising. Yeah. And, and there's a certain pleasure in mm -hmm. knowing that if I really wanted to, yeah. I could really... Yeah, the potential um, yeah. is there, and I think that's um, that in itself is quite rewarding to yeah. a lot of people. I mean, just with a car, sometimes it's a, people love the acceleration. Mm -hmm. So yeah, okay, you're not going to go more than more than um, 58 uh, mm. around town, but but um, but there can be that half second burst mm. where you feel, um, and because actually acceleration is more exhilarating than sheer speed. Mm -hmm. It's the change in speed that's exhilarating, yes. right? And so um, I guess you can experience that even if you're not going above the speed limit. Mm. And that's why I'm um, kind of coming back to, to the, the case of Emmett Myers in, in The Hitchhiker. Is it's not a f reach to, to say that that kind of feeling would be quite similar with, with, a, with a firearm, right? Mm -hmm. So you get people that, um, you know, they, especially in the U.S. where they open carry firearms um, in certain states, just knowing you have it is empowering right for mm. some people their their sense of power or their sense of um, kind of agency comes from the fact that they can feel a gun on their hip or wherever they've, they've sure. got it and so um, that that's where I, I'm specifically interested in in that interplay between the gun and the car in the film um, because they both kind of do the same job as far as providing that sense of, of male power uh, mm. because you Emmett doesn't ever have to use the gun. He never has to um, shoot one of the men. Uh, he, he always is using it as an um, indicator of the violence he could perform.
And just as the car, you know, especially those supercharged cars, um, when you accelerate, it indicates what you could be doing um, in that very same way. Mm. And and so there is, there's this kind of connection there. Mm. Um, and and it and it just so happens that both are tools that predominantly historically have been used by men more than they've been used by women, and that's why I, I do link them to to a sense of male power. That's why I use that that term. Yeah, I've also been thinking as I think about machines like the car and and the gun. If you compare them with the old purely mechanical machines, say of the push bike. Mm-hmm. Or the sword. Mm. Um, those things multiplied human capacity. Okay, so you know, by two or three times or whatever. So that with a sword you could um, you could be a lot more um, destructive or powerful uh, in war than you could just with your bare hands. Mm. But it was still proportionate somehow to what you could do with your bare hands because actually it still involved a lot of your own strength oh, yes. to wield the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's the same with the bike. You know, sure, you can go a lot faster with the bike, you can go a lot further, but you basically still need to be athletic in yes. order to do that. And e- even the motion of cycling is not so different from the motion of running. Mm-hmm. And so, the, there's something. There's a there's a deeper connection between the um, the the device and the body. Mm. It's almost like it's it's designed as a just a slight extension of the body. Um, with the car and the gun, it's like the 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 difference between the body and the machine is so much greater. And interestingly, the machine is so much more powerful, but the effort needed to um, to run the machine is so much less. Yes. So when you're sitting in your car, if you if you just like made the car invisible and watched what your body was doing it's like it's tiny little movements yeah and you're basically just sitting in a seat Mm -hmm. and slightly moving some of your toes or you know even with an accelerator often don't even move your whole foot oh yeah just press a little bit in with your toe and and you go an extra 20 k's an hour faster Um, with the gun again it's like so much more destructive than a sword but you don't have to swing your arm or anything Um, just a slight pull of your finger um, so I think that has real repercussions for how we relate to these machines. Um, we relate to them quite differently from how we would have related to um, the sword and the bike. Mm. Yeah, oh, I, I, absolutely. I think it's quite fascinating, um, you know, exactly what you say with, you know, the, the, the precursors to the, the car and the, um, the gun um, involved a lot more of the, of the body. And I dare say, they certainly were more effective at demonstrating the. Uh, I suppose, in this case, we'll we'll keep it to to men, the the male potential, right? So if you um, were a warrior who could swing a sword very well, then that said a lot about you and um, the sword that you're using. Whereas, um, you know, a gun. Potentially, anyone could pull a trigger. And so it, it doesn't require as much skill. And um, I think that's why uh, potentially, you know, I suppose this is my theory about it, um, why a lot of supercharged cars are, are stick shifts. You know, a lot of men in, who are car enthusiasts enjoy stick shifts because that guarantees a uh, closer level of engagement mm. physically with, with the car, right? Yeah. Um, again, 
I, I fully admit I do not know how to drive a stick shift. Uh, so so um, I'm talking purely on a theoretical level here. Um, my dad tried to teach me and I, I killed the car. Um, what is it that you have to like? Put in the clutch. Yeah, the clutch. There you go. Um, you know, look, I don't even know half these terms. <laughs> um, you know, but but I, I I couldn't even get it to start, and uh, so so I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to that. But I am fascinated by by the fact that you know you, you do get people who um, love driving a stick shift for the feel mm. of being part of the acceleration because you are literally replacing the kind of automatic transmission with a person's arm. Um, you are taking the place of that piece of machinery yeah. as you are driving. And I think that's very rewarding for mm. some people because it does connect you um, in a way that maybe we were connected, as you say, with the bike. Yeah. Um, it, it, you, you get to demonstrate more of your skill than simply just moving your foot up and down. Yeah. Um, it so. makes me think of the first car that I owned. It was actually given to me because it was basically it had lots of problems with it. but. It worked, yeah. and among the problems it had was the back suspension pretty much didn't work. So if you went over even the smallest bump or pothole, I think the back tyres would actually hit the, um, the guard over the top mm. of them. So you'd have this huge thump, which felt and sounded horrible. So you'd be, as you were driving, on one hand you'd be avoiding mm. all the little bumps in the road. <laughs> and then the, um, it was a manual um, a stick shift, and... The gearbox was also a little bit um, stuffed, so there were some gears where you really had to like shove it in to get mm. it in properly. And eventually, in fact, I, I got a mechanic to um, to have a little look at the um, gearbox, and he said it's pretty munted, but he did a little bit of work to it, um, which at first made it much smoother to use, but then second gear, I think it was, yeah, it was the second gear that suddenly didn't work. You couldn't get it in second oh, gear. Oh, okay. And so you had to jump from first gear to yeah. third. So it meant you had to really push it in first gear as yeah. far as fast as you could and then throw it into third and then it would be kind of um, going at the slowest um, extreme of third gear. Mm. That was fine, um, except when you were going up a steep hill, the sort oh. of hill where you ne really needed second gear. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember there was a hill like this uh, in the place I was living at the time. Um, but like what you said, while all this was an inconvenience, I kind of felt a sense of uh, achievement mm -hmm. that I could master this this car. Yep. And um, there was a lot more involved in just driving it mm. than just sort of point and shoot. Yeah. Um, so it sort of there was a satisfaction that went along with yeah. having a car like this. Because I think ultimately, you know, and that raises a, a, another question um, of you know, that line between mastery over a machine and being augmented by a machine to the point where you are um, almost weakened in some way by it. Because as you say, um, you know, if you're just pushing your foot up and down on the accelerator or the brake, um, and that's the extent of your involvement, mm. um, there is a sense of, oh, well, who's really doing the work here? Um, and so for someone who theoretically um, places a lot of pride in his or her physical ability, um, that could be quite problematic. And so um, there is a sense, as you say, of mastering the car and not letting it kind of do the work for you. So um, yeah, that's quite, that's quite interesting. 
um, that you were that you felt that after kind of um, maneuvering the transmission as uh, in mm. the way that you did, um, and I think again that's why um, manual transmissions are so popular mm. with with certain people, because then you do get a sense that it's you controlling the car. The car is not. Um, some sort of apparatus that you just happen to be a passenger and yeah, you do get right. that sense of agency back. I was thinking too, this is sort of another aspect of the car, that people often talk about being in a car like being in a bubble mm. because you're a bit detached from, from the outside world. Mm. But what gets you in contact with the outside world instantly is having an accident. Yes. And, you know, driving the motorway each day, as I do, it's common to see people, unfortunately, uh, out, out of their cars on the side of the road, and mm. they're waiting for the, for the tow truck to come or whatever, and you realise, and you kind of, you just pity them, cause, and, you, and you just hope, like, hopefully that's not going to be me. Yeah. Um, but it's so easy for it to happen if you just lose your concentration for a bit, the mm. old nose to tail you know, can happen so easily. Mm. Um, but it's like that sudden... A sudden jolt that bursts that bubble of security yes. and you suddenly realize, oh, I am in the real world. Yeah, and you are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I, at some point I use the phrase mechanical solipsism. Um, you know, cars kind of produce the sense of uh, you being the only person that matters. Uh, Obviously, depending on the driver, because you mm. might be a very worldly, very connected person who never feels that. Um, but there are those people that, that, that quite, you know, possibly might feel, I am, as you say, in this bubble, and I'm going where I want to go. And there's a reason why I think, you know, um, they teach you defensive driving uh, when you get your license because it's that idea of you need to actually be looking out for other people rather than mm. thinking, oh, everyone will um, should just obey the laws and I just need to worry about me. Because right. you don't. You don't just need to worry about you. You need to worry about everyone. Yeah. Um, because that's how accidents happen when you when you think, oh, I'll do my thing and everyone just better do their thing and, mm. and hopefully we'll, we'll never collide. Um, mm. And so, yeah, to, to have yourself awakened from that... Um, reverie of, of, of um, individuality and protection and, and all of that, uh, an accident will certainly do that. Mm. Um, and I think that when, um, off the top of my head, I cannot recall the name, but um, one of the sociologists that I borrow from with this um, concept of cyborg mobility, um, she did say that, that the violence of the road, so accidents um, in particular, um, are a very um, stark contrast to um, the idea that we are these indestructible um, kind of human-machine hybrids that can just go around and um, and live our lives and, and drive um, and not worry about anything else. Because mm. again, it, it, um, as you pointed out, you drew you know whenever you drive past an accident, you, that's when you see the people. Yeah. You know, you don't see them when you're driving past them. Well, you I mean you might see them through the window, but it is weird to see them out on the street or out on the highway because they don't belong there. The yeah. cars do, but the people don't. The people yeah. need to be inside the cars, yeah. and so it's only in these kind of um, circumstances that you get to see the human behind the machine, mm. um, and that's why it kind of disrupts that idea.
of cyborg mobility as, as kind of inherently um, invulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose, too, that it means that it's easier to lose patients in a traffic jam than it might be, say, if you were in a queue of mm. human bodies. Yes. Because at least in the queue, you can see the faces and, and you get a sense of these are... Um, these are people here, mm. but when you're in a line of cars, you're very detached from all the other drivers, and so yeah. you just see a bunch of machines mm -hmm. blocking your way. Yeah. Well, it's like the difference between, you know, let's say you are in a queue of, of people, and in front of you is this very frail 90-year-old woman. Um, you might, in that context, be aware that, hey, I should, as you say, have a bit of patience because this person clearly needs a little more time mm. than someone who's like, you know, in their 20s. Now, if that 90-year-old woman was behind the wheel of a car, she would have exactly the same playing field as a 20-year-old. Mm. And so there is also that we take into consideration where we get impatient because it's like, look, you're just the same as me. You're in a car. I'm in a car. Just hurry up and get to where you need to be going. Yeah. And, and so that, you, that furthers the disconnect, I mm. think. Um, between human beings when we can't have those physical cues um, you know so we do rely on the human body quite extensively to tell us um, you know how we should be engaging um, which is actually a lot of what you talk about mm. in the piece that you that you gave me is that that idea of the external the the body as we experience it um, you know can tell us a lot about the person um, and we require that to um, make our judgments about someone, at least, you know, especially in those first impressions of, of someone, mm. um, you know. Yeah, yeah, so I guess I'm saying that, first of all, I'm implying that there's a bit of a distinction between the external and the internal, mm -hmm. and that what we're seeking to understand in another person is somehow internal, but that the only way we can really learn that, that we, we can get to know another person is through uh, what's on the outside. So mm. I speak a little bit about even just the skin. It's through the skin that you, you see the person, which is strange. Um, I don't think I said it in there, but I mean, you often generally, you don't just see skin either. I mean, people wear clothes, obviously. Yes. <laughs> so they even cover the covering. Mm. But still, even the cover of the covering is still showing forth the person somehow mm. that's still the external that's leading you to some sort of understanding of the internal and that's where you know I was quite interested in um, the extent to which performativity comes into play with what you're talking about um, because when I say performance you know it, I'm, I'm certainly not saying you know the kind of performance that you would see on a stage in a play I'm talking about things like clothes um, as as you mentioned um, you know so yes that physical um, skin the appearance of, of the body itself um, comes into play but then clothing um, or, or even body language uh, things like that they all kind of meld mm. together so yeah. what extent to uh, in, you know to you particularly to what extent does performity come performativity come into play when um, when we're talking about the way the self can be experienced. I mean, does that, do things like clothes and mannerisms and all the things we kind of build up around ourselves, mm. do they give us an accurate indication? Um, 
you know, because you do seem to focus quite heavily on the exterior. Um, and, and in fact, I do have a follow-up question um, when you say that um, we can learn more about the person through normal association than through things like invasive psychoanalysis. Sure. Um, so if the external is the um, dominant um, method of, of kind of getting to know the person, mm. does all of the kind of social accoutrements like clothes and things like that, do they complicate things or do they help? Well, I think, again, that's what we have to start with. Yeah. Because when I talk about normal association as the only way to really, well, as the best way, at least, mm. to get to know another person, then it means however they are presenting themselves is the starting point, really. Mm. And some people might present themselves in quite a straightforward way. And you might feel like, yeah, um, they're pretty straight up and what you see is what you get and getting to know this person is not going to be problematic. But then there's other people where we sense, hmm, you know, like a bit of a face is being put up here. Mm. And so I'm not sure that what I'm getting is genuine reflection of what's interior to this person. Mm. So I think we have both of those experiences. But even in the second case, that's still your starting point. Because you can't, like, violently <laughs> tear down mm. whatever barriers that they've put up. The barriers themselves, even, have to be your starting point. And so, yeah, sure, you might try to um, encourage that person to lower some of those barriers, but they have to choose to do it. Mm. So I think this whole question relates to human freedom quite a lot. So in a way that a person has to be disclosed to you and they have, to they have to be the one doing the disclosing. Mm -hmm. And that is really the only way to, to, to get to know the person as they are. Um, if you try and get around their freedom and um, encounter their interiority some other way, you're creating a whole lot of other problems, I think, a whole lot of other um, obstacles. Mm. Yeah. So, like, for example, the background check that you might do, you know. I've just met this person for five minutes and they've gone away now. Maybe I'll, I'll Google them, I'll mm -hmm. Facebook them, I'll, I'll find out everything I can about them. And, yeah, you might gather some data, but what you gain in data, you lose, I think, in the authenticity of your relationship, mm. the level of trust and everything. They might be totally unaware, but you know... And so you know that you've been um, maybe slightly, I don't know if dishonest is the word, but it's like you've done a check on them that they're not aware of. Yes. And so there's straight away this imbalance in your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, I am curious as to what you mean by psychoanalysis, um, you know, when, when you do say that normal association, so I suppose the two phrases I'm curious about are normal association, what you mean by that, so whether that's purely just, you know, conversation, um, something more intimate, I'm not sure, um, and then how that contrasts with psychoanalysis, because um, obviously we've got the actual school of thought of, of psychoanalysis, right. um, but then, for example, uh, and this is just me being curious, when you say, oh, you know, um, you might be able to tell if someone is putting up 
barriers through his or her clothing or things like that, or you know, there's this kind of face, as you say, um, that they're putting up. That kind of perception of, hey, this person um, has these tendencies, you know, or, or is predisposed to putting on some sort of um, facade, isn't that its own kind of form of trying to get into the psychology of that person? You know, mm. so, so I mean, so, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of explain, you know, so, so normal association, and then psychoanalysis, um, you're favoring the former over the latter. Mm. So what do you mean by both of those terms? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because I think I made that contrast without thinking too much about, um, I could have probably thought a bit more critically about that contrast, put it that way. But I think what I was getting at is that there's a way of en engaging with somebody that is honest and open. Mm -hmm. I and then there, are, there is a way, and maybe it's unfair to call it psychoanalysis, because there's a genuine psychoanalysis that can be maybe um, honest, for example. Mm. Like if someone goes to a psychologist and freely um, opens himself up to that um, practitioner, then there's some psychoanalysis going on. But that's not sort of a backdoor way to understanding the person yeah. because, it's, because it's still respecting human freedom. Mm. So maybe what I'm talking about is ways of trying to, um, trying to get to what's really going on but that bypass the freedom of that person somehow. Mm. And so that might be where you subject someone to psychoanalysis against their will or... Um, or it might just be, you know, all the background check. Or even just that you go away and you do all this <laughs> psychoanalyzing in your own head about them, but it's maybe it's a bit divorced from reality because you're just, you're just in your imagination. Um, yeah, so would you say that, you know, um, I suppose this is perhaps a little um, basic, um, or at least, you know, we, we probably think this is quite, um, oh, I'm forgetting the word now. You'd think I would. I would remember it. Um, obvious. There we go. Uh, ironically, <laughs> um, so this this may seem obvious, but but would you say that then a healthy connection between two people um, is one that is cooperative? So there has to be that. Um, well, I suppose you know I've I've heard. Um, I guess I can't recall um, any one source, but I've heard more than once that 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 um, ideal for any relationship is giving of yourself to the other with the trust that they will give themselves mm. to you and so this mutual giving but then of course as you say with um, things like you know <laughs> googling someone um, you know having that uh, kind of background check as it were that is not cooperative right that it, it, then it ceases to become um, a, a cooperative relationship um, even though, yeah, that, no, that's quite interesting. Yeah, so uh, I guess it all implies quite a bit about the human person and that it implies that you've got someone here of value. There's a value that I don't really have a right to, mm. but which I may receive as a kind of gift because it's, Gift meaning it's not something I can generate myself. I rely on the other one to reveal themselves to me 
if I'm to know them. So, mm. so I'm dependent on them um, to, to un uncover aspects of themselves. And I guess in a friendship, this happens gradually in an ongoing way. Mm. And, you know, they say in a, in, a, in a good friendship, it can actually continue for decades and decades. Um, it's hard, I think, because we get to a point where we kind of are very tempted to think, oh, I, I know them now. I've, mm. I've seen them in every conceivable situation. But, but, then, but then, of course, that's not true because there's always a new situation. And then you see a, a slightly different side of them again and you're reminded, ah, okay, there, here's a person that my knowledge of them will never be the same as, it will never be equal to who they are. It will always be less than who they are. Um, and I guess it goes in the opposite direction too, that while I'm receiving something of them, um, I'm also offering them something of myself. Mm. And, and those two things can kind of happen simultaneously. It's, um, it's what happens when you share experiences together. Mm. So, so, so I suppose what you're saying is we can approximate someone's um, selfhood I, might, be, might be a good way to put it because identity can be quite, you know, the, that's mm. a tricky term. Yeah. Um, you know, but you're going more ontological than, than just kind of social identity. Yeah, and personal I think is a yes. good word. Yeah, it's personal. If you say identity, you could say personal identity. Um, meaning it's not about their particular group that they associate with, mm. but it's about who they are. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, you know, we can come to a, you know, in, even in the cases of extremely intimate relationships, a husband and wife, for example, they can come to a um, almost complete uh, knowledge of each other, but never a complete knowledge. Is that...? Yeah, I don't know if I would even say almost. Okay, so, so quite far from, from almost. Because I think what we're talking about is that to fully know the other person is something sort of, I would say, almost quasi-infinite. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like you almost get to the infinite. Yes. Um, but not wanting to get away from quantifying it, because I think quantity is just confuses the issue. Um, it's probably better to think of it in that there's this, there's this deep quality to this person, unique quality, which I catch glimpses of and I remember, but remembering it is not the same as seeing it again. And I need to be reminded regularly of this unique um, quality of the other person. And as I glimpse it more and more, then my my glimpse becomes clearer, but mm -hmm. can kind of keep getting clearer. Yes. There's no limit to how clear it can get. That's quite interesting. Because I, I think, like that, I know this is certainly not um, probably a track that we want to go down, but um, it, it makes me think of the, the kind of, I suppose, to analogize it. If you had an infinite amount of money and you gave someone half of that, that person would also now have an infinite amount of money. So when you get into kind of infinity, it becomes really problematic. You can't actually say, well, I'm going to give you half. Yeah. Um, and so I, I understand that, you know, it, it is tricky to quantify it, um, the, the extent to which you can know someone. Um, but then what would that mean for, you know, things like saying, well, I know so-and-so better than you do? 
surely, I mean, because that, that, that is a form of quantifying that relationship. Well, um, that's why I use the word quality. Because yes. um, quantity is something that can be, I guess, divided up. Yes. Quality, you can say that something is of a greater quality than something else without having to put a number on the mm -hmm. quality, right? So you might say that the Mona Lisa is of a higher quality painting than um, your three-year-old's painting. Mm -hmm. you, you may say that. You may say the opposite. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you're not... If you, if you put some kind of number on it, I think it doesn't really have much meaning. Well, yeah. I suppose what, what I'm kind of curious about is... Is it simple enough to say that the more you know someone, the better you know someone? Because then more and better are kind of um, related to each yeah. other? Because more is a quantity and better is the quality. But, mm. you know, I, I understand that it is tricky. Yeah. Um, but does it not follow that, you know, if the, you know someone well... Uh, to use that uh, kind of very carefully. You know mm. someone well if you know them for a long time, um, or you could actually know someone for a long time and not know very much about them if you're not very um, close. But that level of closeness or that level of intimacy is certainly, while not being measurable or quantifiable, as you say, you can still know someone more deeply then you might know someone else. Yes. And that is a quality. That's the quality of your knowing or your, of your relationship. Yeah. And yet that's because you know more about them than you, uh, might, yeah. okay. than you might know about someone else. Yeah, good question. I, I think, though, the, the, so there is an aspect of quantity when it comes to knowing someone because you can, you can know a, a number of facts about them, mm. for example, right? But I don't, I think the facts help you to know something about the, the uniqueness of that person. But the facts and the uniqueness of the person are not the same thing. You can't reduce the uniqueness of the person to the facts, right? Mm. Um, for example, I could be explaining, I could be describing my friend to you, and I could say that my friend uh, studied in Hamilton, and uh, my friend. Um, uh, uh, drives a Honda, and um, my friend you know, studies English literature. And you're like, oh, that's like me. Mm. I do those things. And I'm like, yeah, but you're nothing like my friend. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so so in the things that you can describe and measure are helpful because they do provide little windows into the person, but they're not in themselves knowing the person. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's actually, if we're talking about uniqueness, um, by its nature you can't give a word to what's unique because words by their nature are generic. Mm. So it's interesting. I, I find this really fascinating that we use words to describe a person, um, but if we know them, if we have sensed what's unique in them, we, we kind of have to stop short. We can't actually describe it. Um, we'd have to say, oh, Come and come and meet him. Like you mm. gotta get to know this person. Um, that's the only way to really see the uniqueness of that person because I can't describe it, even if I can describe lots of facts about them. Yeah, 
And I think that's where um, it's almost the paradox of knowing. You know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Mm. And which is also why Socrates said that the only thing he knows is that he knows nothing. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I feel like that a lot. You know, <laughs> I, just, I, I, I know uh, it seems very little um, as time goes by. But, you know, it, it does seem that that and, and I certainly because um, I do want to talk about that whole idea of mystery that you that you bring up. Mm. Um, to be very clear, I, I'm, I'm not trying to kind of conflate the mystery of God being revealed with the mystery of just us kind of existing in the world and knowing each other. Um, but w would you say there's a sense of, um, you know, mystery or perhaps in a less spiritual way, paradox? There's a paradox where um, the more you come to know a person, um, as you say, that uniqueness uh, you might get a, 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 a fuller sense of the uniqueness of the person, but that mm. uniqueness itself can never be fully understood. And so yes. you can, um, as I said, the more you know about them, the more you realize you don't know about them. Yeah. Um, and that in itself is, is similar, not exactly the same, but similar um, to our understanding of God, that we might come mm. to know him. And, and as you say in this piece that you um, sent to me, just as... Uh, the body, that external image, gives us a sense of the person. Christ, in his humanity, gives us a sense of, of God, mm. uh, the Father. And and so we might come to know God through Christ, for example, but then, of course, we can never fully get to that knowledge of, of God, and that in itself is, is very mysterious. And, and, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think there's a very clear connection between the two. And in the New Testament connections are definitely made between you know I guess love of neighbor and love of God and the what flows from that is the encounter with your neighbor and the encounter with God are so tightly connected that maybe they're distinct but they're not separated because I mean we don't bump into God all the time as mm. God you know yes we but we bump into other human beings all the time and I guess the Christian vision understands these human beings as sort of quasi-infinite sources of mystery, mm. um, almost like little signs of the great mystery, which is God himself. Yeah. And so you can't separate the two. Um, I'm really fascinated by the whole idea of how we come to know reality, but not just like how I come to know reality today, but go back to my infancy how I how I kind of was brought into this whole real world that I that I now take for granted mm. and and um, some of the authors I've read in my my PhD and that sort of thing talked about that initial gaze between the child and its mother that being the sort of the, um, the most common way of putting it I mean it could equally be the father but but because of the generally the closeness of the mother and the child that gaze it's in that gaze that um, the child first experiences a reality outside of themselves that is somehow like profound and that's looking back at them and it's mm -hmm. not just an extension of them and and um, and I've seen this in my own children as they've as they've um, grown like a newborn can't really look at you its eyes are not adjusted properly mm. and it doesn't fix its gaze but Soon enough, um, within a few weeks, you know, and you can play little games, you can move your head from side to side, and, and these little eyes are following you. And you realize that in looking back at you, they've 
come into the real world in a way. They're now interacting in the real world. They're, they're players on the stage. And my contention is that this is like the basis of how we can be sure that we're actually what's outside of us is real. I think this is what truly bridges the the subject-object gap left by Descartes. There have been lots of different theoretical systems that have sought to bridge that gap. But I think in practice what bridges the gap is that experience of an encounter with another person. Because there's a kind of certainty in that encounter that you don't have when you encounter an object because the object isn't looking back at you um, but there's, there's this kind of knowledge in encountering another person eye to eye and um, so that's what we're talking about when um, well that's what's that's the backdrop it's the behind the scenes of this assumption we have that that this world we inhabit is real. Um, and children do start to interact with objects, but it's, it's, it's quite a bit later than, than the time when they start interacting with other people. So um, if you think the, the time between being able to focus on your eyes with the eyes, there's probably several months delay before they're grabbing stuff with their hands. And that's like the... The, the logical progression um, of, of that contact with the person. So, so there's, there's that foundational experience, and then when it comes to um, encountering God, which we do in faith, um, there's also, I guess, this, this basic... Um, people talk about their conversion or coming to faith and um, and there's you know an infinite number of different stories but there's always some kind of personal encounter that might be mediated through another human being or through a particular experience and um, you can't simply translate that experience into proofs because it's the experience itself that is the kind of that provides the certainty for the person. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like, um, or at least to me, that there are these two frameworks for knowing or for kind of or, or coming to know. Um, and one is kind of purely theoretical, um, and the other is this personal encounter, this personal experience. And it's almost, uh, in my mind, the, the distinction between observing and recognizing. Um, when you were going on about um, you know babies and how they look at you, that's kind of what came to mind is that there are, there is this moment where the child recognizes or um, maybe another way of putting it is places in context uh, what he or she is seeing. And so you can observe something in a kind of detached theoretical manner or you know in, in, in that kind of way. But as soon as you start to locate it within a framework of your own personal experience, it, then you begin to recognize it rather than just see it mm. in a kind of static way. Yeah. Um, so that personal uh, experience, that framework of, of um, your own personal experience, 
operates is that kind of context through which we can start um, locating God in that way to see what, what does it, not just what God means or what God is because of course we'll never know a hundred percent but quite importantly what God means to me for me um, you know it, it's a uh, reciprocal rela- uh, kind of thing it's a um, because it requires you and God together rather than just you observing him in a kind of static way. Um, yeah, and there's that whole interplay that we were talking about before the mirror, mm. that um, part of recognition of the other is a recognition of yourself mm. through the other that, that happens. So there's the intersubjectivity, you might say, um, at play. So both directions simultaneously are going on. And so um, I recognize the other, and at the same time, I get an insight into myself that I could never have got just by examining myself. Um, And perhaps it's the same with God, that the insight into God might at the same time be a, a particularly profound insight into who I am that I could never have had even from an encounter with another human being um, or you know, purely another human being so again it's like oh maybe, maybe, maybe this was God that I encountered because of the profundity of the insight that I received in that you know, recognition in that encounter um, the, the reflecting back on me also and says something about who I'm looking at mm. Um, in your uh, in the, the the bit that you gave me from from your thesis, um, you mentioned Christ as um, that kind of um, using the analogy of of the person's exterior, kind of um, intimating something about the interior. So in in the same way, Christ kind of leads the way to to God at a, a deeper level. And there's that that phrase that always comes up uh, with with various. Um, theologians and, and, and whatnot, the Jesus is, is God with skin on. Um, and to what extent would you say that Jesus, because this is just off the top of my head, Jesus places God um, in his you know metaphysical kind of mystery. Um, places God in human context. So so if we, um, you know, I'm, I'm I guess I'm just kind of obsessed with context right now Um, it's going through my head Um, because that is how we make sense of the world around us is that we place Mm. everything in our own context Um, because I can't base my experiences on your own reactions you know I I don't think like you because I'm not you and so everything that comes to me um, you know sense wise uh, is going to be filtered through my own experience of it um, which is my own unique context Jesus, in this time on earth, would you say that it operates in a similar way, that he kind of places God in context by his life, his actions? Yeah, so the whole God with skin on uh, thing is maybe a paraphrase of his own words when he says, to have seen me is to have seen the Father. Mm. Right, and that's quite mysterious because does he mean to have literally, like, visibly seen me and you want to say that yeah like it definitely includes that that 
that physical vision of him. Mm. It's not simply some spiritualized understanding. Um, so to have seen him in his humanity, because it's the only way we can see him, is to have um, seen or encountered or caught a glimpse of this infinite mystery that goes beyond the visible. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think, and so in terms of context, just thinking about context now, I would be wary of, of, of dividing contexts, like you've got your context, I've got my context. Um, I think there's a kind of, the whole thing about encountering another person, in a personal way, is that we come to share a context. Mm -hmm. So perhaps there, there is a sense in which, you know, each person has a context, but they kind of need to overlap to be meaningful at all. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, that's where relationship does come in, because you yeah. can't really have that overlap unless you are interacting and engaging yeah. um, with the other. Yeah, and perhaps that's what I mean when I talked about the child coming into the real. Um, the birth of, their, of them having a context occurs when they encounter another person. Mm. So that there's no, there's never a time where you've got your own isolated context. Um, it's, I don't know if that's really possible, but that it's this. We come into this shared um, world, you might say, and and while while each of us has a different insight, a different angle on it, for sure. But by its nature, it's got to be a shared reality. Otherwise, it's not a reality. Yeah, and I think that's quite an interesting, um, you know, talking about mirrors, talking about reality, because mm. we live in an age where there are many kinds of mirrors that can mm. reflect all kinds of ostensible realities that, that maybe um, appear real but are not. Mm. And um, I think increasingly we uh, substitute the mirror of the, the other, of that personal interaction with mirrors, uh, you know, in social media. Uh, especially, um, and I, I'm quite interested in your thoughts about um, how, uh, you know, if we use um, different forms of media to reflect our own, because uh, it, it's, it's a twofold thing. So in in a mirror, um, you are seeing um, your reflection come back to you, but of course mm -hmm. you have to be looking at it for it to work. Yeah. And so um, with social media, for example, uh, if I am looking at someone's uh, Facebook profile, someone's Instagram, um, you know, there's me getting the information, but then the information that is being given to me um, also is, is uh, you know, very important because it could be falsified. It could be mm. um, kind of, especially with Instagram, I notice a lot of people um, put up very aestheticized images. Uh, I'm I'm guilty of that. Um, you know, I love putting up pictures of food, especially. Uh, you know, I I think I've got more pictures of food than I do of my own self, um, which is its own problem. I, I imagine. Um, you know, so so on a place, you know, on a platform like like Instagram, where you can um, filter out the parts of your life that you might think are not pretty enough for mm -hmm. your online persona in that way, um, you know, how does that affect the way that your self is reflected out in the world or how people, um, you know, can engage with you? Mm. I think the difference between those kind of platforms is that 
there's an attempt there to be fully in control of uh, of the face that you're putting out there, and because it can be it can be intimidating to face up to somebody, especially a stranger, because you don't know how they're going to see you, right? Because mm. you can't be even checking up on your own face um, in the moment, kind of by by your nature. As soon as you look towards somebody, you don't see yourself anymore, and so there's this vulnerability involved. But with these um, social media platforms, we've, I guess, tried to remove that vulnerability by um, taking control of the face that you put out there. Um, I was speaking to a uni student recently who was saying that they had some presentations to give in class, and they were amazed at the level of anxiety that this caused in not just a few of the other students, but the majority were basically having seemed to be having panic attacks and hyperventilating in the corner and and building up to this like extremely difficult, horrible experience of having to stand in front of everyone and then afterwards like having to take a moment to recover and it seemed over dramatic for Sure, they're 18-year-olds perhaps in their first year at uni and you can understand there's a certain amount of um, anxiety and perhaps they'll grow into the role um, more as they go. But I was struck by this. I thought, hmm, it'd be normal to have a handful of people who are really anxious. But normally then you've got a bunch of people in the middle who are sort of only... who are, who are a, bit, a bit worried, but they can kind of hold themselves together. And then you've got a few really confident ones. It's the way I would have expected but it seemed that, no, like the norm seemed to be total anxiety and freaking out. I wondered, is this partly a result of the social media um, climate that we live in, where you're so used to being in control of the face that you put forward, that the moment you're not, the moment you stand up there and you're exposed because it's a face-to-face -face encounter, and you're not just standing in the background like you are with social media and projecting up the things that you want to put up there. Um, then it's this, oh, it's this very scary reality that um, that confronts people and that they can barely cope with. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, I, I like um, that you kind of frame it as as a way of controlling image because I think, especially with um, like a, many of the videos I watch on YouTube, for example, have a style of editing. Um, where you can see the cuts in between, you know, uh, different takes that they've done. Mm. Um, and so as they present the information, uh, you know, there's just cut to cut to cut. Um, and that's become normalized, where it's almost an aesthetic that you put in your videos now. Uh, if you, you look at the most popular YouTubers, they'll, they'll all have this similar kind of editing style. Um, and so it, it, it's almost uh, rebranded from, oh, I'm controlling exactly what you see of me, to, oh, well, this is just how, you know, presentations are done. This is just how, um, this is something that's entertaining to watch. So is it um, kind of like bloopers or um, the takes that, the mistakes or whatever? It, or? It, well, it, no, it, it kind of looks like that in, a, in the way that it's edited because some of them are very um, kind of snappy in the way that they cut from shot to shot, um, but it's the real thing. So it's not the outtakes, it's the um, actual content. Okay. Um, but... Um, you know, I, I do think it, it screams of uh, kind of control over one's own image. Mm. And um, I think that there is this tendency to 
um, want to project an, an image to, to people, and I think that's human nature in a lot of ways. We want to look our best, um, and I agree you know, with what you, you, you say. It, it, it does come down to the sense of vulnerability that we get. Um, uh, if we can be... Uh, if we can always look our best, then, then that is very empowering. There's actually... It reminds me of... Um, coming back to mirrors, I suppose... Uh, many social psychologists uh, say that uh, a trick to improve your confidence, if you're like, let's say you have a big presentation, uh, like these, these students, maybe they would have felt a bit better if they'd done this. Um, let's say you have a big presentation, you're a bit nervous, um, you do uh, what some people call hero posturing. Uh, so you stand in front of a mirror, let's say with your hands on your hips and your, your feet out wide, almost like you're posing like Superman in, on the front page of a comic book, and you do that for about two minutes. And apparently it, it rewires your brain um, oh, yes. in that moment where you, you feel more confident or at least you're um, thinking um, a bit more positively about yourself, which I find quite fascinating. Mm. That, that, again, looking at yourself in the mirror in a certain pose affects how you see yourself. And then, of course, that will um, kind of affect how people see you when you stand up there and you're a bit more confident. Mm. Um, is that reality is, is, is another question, mm. um, you know, because it is certainly very contrived to, um, to stand that way. We don't normally do that. We like to see it in movies and on mm. comic books, um, but we don't do it in, in quote-unquote real life. Uh, so, so it is quite interesting that, that those things have an effect on the way we perceive ourselves. Yeah, well, yeah, that is an interesting question. I would say posture, for example in that situation does make a difference that you could lead with your posture say you're feeling nervous well but you know what sort of a posture it is that sort of um, shows and, and ends up generating confidence mm. and so you could just take on that posture before you even feel that way and just hope that your feelings will catch up and, and perhaps they will to some extent um, so I would definitely think that that would be true the whole psych, it's kind of a psychological self um, manipulation or something, you know, mm. uh, to stand in front of a mirror doing that. Um, so I guess it might work for similar reasons. But it, it might not really be necessary when um, I guess you have built a, a reasonable level of confidence. And then it might just be enough that when you get up in front of the actual audience, you just remember, okay, maintain a good posture. At least start off with a good posture and, and hopefully you'll build from there. Um, so again, like psychology, doing things on that psychological level, which I guess is more like standing in front of the mirror, can probably help play a part. But in the end, you'd hope it would lead into more of a, a realistic approach, which is just to take the posture in the moment. Um, that would be my sort of recently middle of the road yeah, <laughs> reading so, of it yeah I mean so out of curiosity what would be your go-to like if, let's say someone comes to you and they say I I always get anxious about how I appear to people right what would be your first bit of advice to kind of getting to a more uh, realistic sense of oneself mm. um, you know well I mean you can always take on that so ask the person in that while you're talking to them, well, take on a 
show me a confident posture now, and at least I've got an audience of one. Mm. Um, and and I'm sure that psychologists might do something like that. You know, let's let's start off small. Let's let's have you show confidence, boldness in this very small setting, and then you know let's build it up a bit. Um, I was listening to. Um, Jordan Peterson podcast recently and he was saying he had a client once who was so anxious she couldn't even go with him to a cafe to have a coffee together because I know she was freaked out by public places and strangers and all that. Um, after three years she was doing stand-up comedy. Wow. Yeah but obviously there are lots of um, steps in between and it was like the, the point was uh, identify what you're afraid of and step by step confront it in little ways at first and then in larger ways and in larger ways confront confront so um, yeah I mean maybe the mirror is a really preliminary step but you want to be able to do that in front of a person eventually because um, hmm. mm. I do I think a lot of our interactions today are um, mediated by, by screens mm. um, which take the place of that kind of organic mirror of the other person. Yeah. Um, so I, I was talking um, uh, earlier about my uh, earlier today about my my sister who uses um, Snapchat, and you know that's um, quite a common platform for people to to kind of maintain what they consider relationships I would say I mean I might seem like a really old person um, you know with, with very antiquated views to some people um, but I but I often think to myself to what extent is that relationship um, you know if you are um, producing snapchat streaks with your friends um, but you've never actually met up with them in real life are yeah. they are they your friends um, do you have a relationship if so what what kind of relationship is it mm. um, and so I think that does, as you say, affect how people um, behave, how they feel when they finally get in front of a real person or, you know, uh, even worse, a, a group of people because that's becoming increasingly uncommon mm. uh, in our society to, to have to present oneself to an entire group of people. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with judgment as well, yeah. um, because relationship is is not an assessment. Uh, it's not about you, um, you know, presenting yourself for scrutiny. Yeah. Um, you would trust that the other person accepts you, um, or if you know there is something there's something terribly wrong with you know, you, uh, God forbid you're some mass murderer and you 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 spill it out to your friend, they're going to to lead you down the right path. Um, so it's not all about um, acceptance, as, as some people might, might think, but I think in a lot of ways there is a lot of judgment that comes through, especially through social media, mm -hmm. and so maybe that lends itself to anxiety mm -hmm. when people finally get into the kind of real human arena. Yeah. Um, face well, and I suppose in a real face-to-face, -face, generally if you're, I guess, a morally sensitive person, you can't help but at least begin to judge when someone manifests themselves to you. But you kind of um, suspend your judgment a lot. You're like, okay, what they just said makes, you know, I, I, I jump to a certain judgment, but I'll, I'll hang on, I'll just put that to, on the back burner for now and I'll, I'll hear them out. And 
I think real encounter sort of uh, trains us to do that to a certain extent. If we want to be successful in our real encounters and gain friends and that sort of thing, then you kind of have to be able to put your judgments to one side for a while and suspend them. But I don't think that's always the case with social media, that um, you're, you're not really encouraged to do that in the same way, because uh, you can make real quick judgments straight away and you can send back a little, um, a little message or a little response and there are no, maybe no direct repercussions because you're, you're separated enough that if, you know you really have to offend the person or whatever, or you can just block them off. <laughs> so um, it doesn't train us in that same virtue, maybe, in being able to acknowledge judgments we made but, but withhold them. And so then, when you when you go from that, which is actually a very highly judgmental environment partly why debates over like Facebook or social media often just turn to um, like shouting matches because mm. because there isn't that sort of lubricant which is provided by the face-to-face -face. Um, but to move from that very judgmental zone into the real you think that it's going to be just as judgmental but that you don't have the same protections anymore and so BAM you know you're You're, you're, you feel your vulnerability even more. But I think this whole thing of vulnerability, you know, you can trace it back to the, to the Garden of Eden, or I think that's what the story of Genesis 2 and 3 is talking about when it's about nakedness. God makes the man and the woman, and first it says that they, um, they, they didn't know that they were naked. They were naked, but they weren't ashamed, I think it says. And then after they eat of the forbidden fruit, then God looks for them and says, where are you? And I was naked, so I had. Who told you were naked? So that they make this discovery of their nakedness, which I think means a discovery of their vulnerability and that basically there's a threat to them. They're, they're threatened. They're vulnerable. You don't realize you're vulnerable unless you can imagine getting um, taken out getting killed, getting wounded. Before that, you might be vulnerable, but you're not aware of it. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, with that um, reference to Genesis, they were always naked, but in a lot of ways, the meaning behind that changed as soon as they, they ate that, that fruit. And, you know, so God saying, well, who told you you were naked, implies that... Um, when they looked at their own nakedness beforehand, it meant something completely different mm. to them. Yeah. So they were always vulnerable, but that the meaning behind that vulnerability um, completely changed to where it was actually perceived as something shameful. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, in in that way, we we are all vulnerable. But I think, especially in you know arenas, as you say, in social media, where um, the repercussions aren't as severe as, as kind of, you know, saying something unsavory to someone in real life um, who can react in real time and things like that. Um, that vulnerability, the, the, the emphasis we place on that changes. Um, and so mm, to, to be aware, I think, that we're, we are vulnerable um, and that's okay. Um, you know, the, the frames we put around that vulnerability um, we have to look out for, mm. I imagine. Now I think the redemption of this, of the fall, mm. you can, if we take the same analogy of nakedness, 
um, then the risen wounded Christ is key for understanding what happens in the redemption. God himself becomes fundamentally vulnerable and even in his victory over death when he comes back risen he still bears the wounds of his crucifixion so he has not um, he has not discarded his vulnerability I think that's what it means and so he's saying look I'm I'm making myself eternally vulnerable how's that um, you don't need to be afraid anymore and so that's like an invitation to us okay come out from behind the bushes come out from behind your screens um, and don't be afraid to encounter what's real don't be afraid to encounter me you know who's at the very bottom of reality um, so yeah I think there's something quite profound going on there with God's response to the problem and I think what's quite beautiful is that vulnerability takes on a literal physical dimension in the Eucharist um, mm. because he's saying, look, I am so vulnerable that, you know, here I am for you to, you know, you could take a host and just carry it out the door. You could do whatever you want with it. And that is unfortunately a problem, you know, with people who, you know, um, mistreat the Eucharist or, or, or things like that. Um, but that's part of the deal that you know mm. God is saying, "Here I am um, for you. Uh, I trust that you'll take care of me. I trust that you'll be reverent, um, mm. because it is a kind of a helplessness in that sense that the body of, of Christ is in our hands in this physical way, in this very small yeah. um, form, very delicate form, mm. and and so it's not simply this. Oh yes, in a kind of theological way, you know, I have these wounds." I am vulnerable for all time. It's, you know, every Mass you attend, it's a reminder that I am vulnerable for you. Yeah. Um, which I, I find quite beautiful. Yeah, that is beautiful. And it makes me, well, we could almost, I think, link it back to, um, to the hitchhiker again. Mm. Because one of the things that happens um, in Genesis is God, God makes them clothes, I think. So they realize they're naked, they realize this vulnerability, so they're clothed. And, and perhaps we could see the car especially as a kind of clothing that you know, we've made for ourselves, um, aside from the fact that it enables us and gives us the power to, to travel. But it also is like a clothing, it's, um, it's something that can protect us from the harsh realities of life. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was rereading my, my notes on The Hitchhiker because um, I'm giving a talk um, next week about it and um, Gwendolyn Audrey Foster, she, she wrote about The Hitchhiker and she was saying that Emmett Myers, uh, the, the titular uh, hitchhiker, he um, has this kind of paranoia um, that he, and this, this self-doubt that he covers with his kind of survivalist um, ideology, right? So it's like, I will take what I want. Um, he uses the gun, the, the car, um, you know, as these kind of uh, shields, not just as tools for violence, but as shields to cover up his own insecurities. And so I think absolutely the car functions as a kind of covering for vulnerability because that's what Myers is using it for. Um, and uh, the more I... 
kind of looked at uh, kind of pictures that I might use in my presentation, I realized just how um, synonymous the car is with certain brands of masculinity as well. So you think of the Aston Martin, think of James Bond. Uh, what is it, the car that um, Knight Rider uses? Uh, you know, was it Kit? Is the car? Yeah. I, uh, you know, so yeah. these famous cars, right? The Batmobile, things like that. Um, all connected to these very either you know fantastical or more realistic. There's like almost a spectrum. Uh, these these fictional characters, and to where you could probably show a picture of the car on its own, and you know which character I'm referring to. Right. Um, and so the car is itself a um, almost like an intermediary for the person behind it. Right. So you don't even need to see the person. You just need to see the car. And so it's more than a covering in a lot of ways. Um, it becomes um, connected in a very uh, symbolic way to, to the person. Um, of course, that's a very different question in real life. Um, you know, yeah. like my someone could see a Honda Civic and they're like, "Oh, that's Mark." Um, you know, they don't they don't connect me with my car in the same way. Um, but I think socially, we, um, or at least in popular culture, maybe it would be better to say, um, we're conditioned to kind of equate certain vehicles with, with their male characters and it does speak a lot about how those vehicles operate as covers for the um, covers for and also uh, symbols uh, sorry so they're, they're covers over what would be the realization that they're just human people yeah right so Emmett Myers at the end of the day is just some psychotic man who needs to escape the police and he needs a car and he needs a driver to do it. Yeah. We, we you know, the car kind of provides that um, symbolic um, wall between uh, the kind of uh, vulnerability that his, his character has um, and the power that he exerts. Right, so, so um, and in certain cases, uh, just like with people like James Bond or Batman or other people that use these flashy cars, mm. we're more tempted to view them as powerful or competent because of the cars they, they drive. Um, that's why in every James Bond film there's a car chase scene. Mm. Um, because it's just to remind us that he's pretty pretty good behind the wheels, so he must be pretty good everywhere else. Um, you know, so it, it leads us away from considering, oh, but what weaknesses does James Bond have? Um, you know, uh, what does he have anxiety? Does he ever doubt um, what he's doing? Does he feel guilty about what he does? Uh, we don't even consider any of that because we're too busy watching, you know, the, the fifteen-minute-long uh, car chase. So they are, I think, symbolically and otherwise, cars cars are very um, effective covers. And that was a very long way of saying that that cars um, are really good at at covering up a host of vulnerabilities and, and anxieties. Mm. And were you saying too that the car becomes like a face as well, more than just a cover? Yeah, and um, and that's seen in um, I'll drag in another film, um, Steven Spielberg's uh, Duel, his first professional film. Uh, he basically the this this um, the main character David Mann is being chased um, by a Peterbilt tanker truck, mm. and um, 
Spielberg said in an interview that he chose the truck especially because it had a face. He said the you know he he, he could pick out the eyes and the windshield yeah. wipers and like eyebrows and all these kind of <laughs> things. And um, and the stunt driver um, who who drove the the, the Peter built throughout the whole film, he actually went to Spielberg and he said, "Can I have a motive for chasing you know David across the country?" And he says, "You don't need a motive. Look at the truck. It's hideous." You, you know, he said something like, "You're a mean son of a bitch," and you know, uh, and and it was there didn't need to be motive because all you need to do is take one look at the truck, take one look at the fact that it kind of has a weird, kind of anthropomorphized face, mm. and that's all you need to know as the viewer uh, is that whoever's driving it must be a mean, uh, kind of aggressive, dirty, uh, you know, uh, truck driver who just. Mm has no real reason um, yeah. for going after this guy. So in that way, it, it had a literal face, you know, you could kind of see it, um, but then it also had this symbolic face that um, you never, ever had to see the driver himself. Yeah. So it's like a face with no eyes or something. It's like an identity with no content, because there's no motive. So there's no way of making sense of this threat. It's mm. just this threat. It's just, it's like the, maybe symbolizing the threat or the menace that's sort of um, part of life that sometimes things just go wrong and it seems to, it seems to be unjust or um, it seems like someone's the world's out to get me um, or, you, or you meet people that seem to encounter like catastrophe after catastrophe and, and they don't seem to have deserved it um, so there is this element in life that some, something's you know, out to get me and but for no reason, and therefore it's a kind of a, I, it's a, it's a, it's a face without a true identity behind it. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's where um, kind of coming back to what we've been saying, you know, about that human context. You know, when you engage with someone and you and you start to um, know more about them, then it, you know, there is that um, that sense of reality that you get that you know social media and other forms um, won't give you. If you have just the face or you have just this image that you're going off, um, that doesn't provide enough for you to really understand the context that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why, you know, with, um, you know, if we are to kind of locate our own selfhood or our own identities in things like vehicles, um, however we choose to do that, what we're essentially doing is um, stripping ourselves of that very important context that, that the other person has to discover through natural association, um, I think is the phrase you use. Um, because there's never any personal connection in, you know, using dual as an example. Um, David in the truck, never, you know, he never gets out of his car and says, hey, I want to talk to you, right? Hey, I've got, you know, I want to ask you why. Never. Um, we never see the driver, we only see the truck. And so it's this inorganic kind of exchange between two people. And even then, when I say two people, I mean two vehicles. And that's the problem, is that uh, you'll never get to the real uh, motive or the real, uh, any kind of reality really behind any of it. Um, so, so you can have a face, you can have an image, but if there's no context there, then, then um, you know, is it real? Um, would be my question. Mm. So maybe we could round up just with a little discussion on the more positive aspects of maybe the car and 
vulnerability and when actually, because um, we've talked about the more sinister side of things, but, but when the car can actually be um, something that, that, that reveals the humanity and the vulnerability. Yeah, because I because I know we had earlier talked about um, like Teslas and and things like that. So so we do get um, vehicles that showcase the uh, the good side of, of human nature that we want to look after the planet. And you know, automobiles are a good way to, to kind of a, a attack that that problem um, of climate change and things like that. Um, but I even think of uh, especially because I I'm interested in the way that vehicles augment. Um, bodies, right? So in the Hitchhiker and in Duel, uh, the cars are these um, are the cars are used to augment male violence or male um, bodies in that way, and it is in, in a negative way. Mm. But we see vehicles in real life that augment the body in a great way. So vehicles that allow wheelchair um, um, people in wheelchairs to to get in and out um, and drive cars. Mm. Um, and those are excellent technologies that, that are really quite um, positive and have a positive impact. So they enable people to do things. And interestingly, that, that's associated with a, a kind of vulnerability, isn't it? Yes. It's a car that's, that's designed to um, account for vulnerability. Yes, and it makes no secret of that vulnerability yeah. as well. You know, when you see cars that have wheelchair accessible ramps built into them or other kind of... Um, Things that that, that um, can allow for automobility in that sense, um, you, it's quite noticeable. You you notice as soon as it pulls up, you're like, wow, that's an interesting um, vehicle. And so, but it's saying here's this vulnerability. How can we harness it? How can we incorporate it into something that works? Yeah. Um, you know, so you're not ignoring it, mm. but nor are you saying, you know, oh well, I guess that's just the way it is. Um, yeah. It's saying how can we actually um, turn it into something good? Yeah. Um, which and is, I guess, it's a similar logic with the family car. And I'm thinking now of the little sign on the back window, "Baby on board" mm -hmm. or something. It's it's not making any secret about the vulnerability. It's it's kind of like proclaiming it. Yeah. Um, we're vulnerable. Um, just want you all to know that. <laughs> well, it's, and it's like L plates, right? right? Um, it, it's saying, yes, I'm a learner, and that's okay. Um, I don't know a lot about the road at this point. I will know more in the future. Um, and it's that proclamation that, you know, you have this vulnerability, but it's a good thing that you have it because everyone has to learn at some point. Um, or most people have to learn how to drive. And... And so yeah, it, it, and those I would classify as kind of the um, the accoutrements, uh, you know, onto the car. So the baby on board, the the L plate, other things. Even those kind of very um, uh, dare I say cliched stickers that have the family, oh, um, yeah. you know, like all the stick figure uh, yeah. families. You know, people like to add things to the cars um, that that say a lot about their own personalities. Mm -hmm. you, know, you might have bumper stickers that you know support political parties or have slogans and you're like okay I um, know I was about to say I know more about this person but based on <laughs> what we've said I know facts about the person uh, might, yeah. might be a bit uh, better to say but the um, moment you make a claim like that and it's a public claim mm. I mean even though you've got you've got a car around you protecting you but still it's like you're, you're putting yourself out there a little bit you are yeah mm. and and your car is literally the um, well literally and 
figuratively the vehicle for that um, yeah. kind of self um, display. Mm. Um, it is it is you know you choosing to again coming back to that idea of control. You're controlling what you put out into the world mm. and what people see of you. And it just so happens that you know because cars are extremely public tools and you use them almost every day. Uh, whatever you choose to put on there, you are choosing deliberately so that people see it all the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're, they're fascinating tools. Mm. Well, um, thanks for this discussion. I think we could we could go on and on and talk about um, a lot of things because it seems to generate uh, these topics seem to generate more and more um, interesting um, subtopics. But um, maybe we'll we'll round up for there. But yeah, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate, um, and it's been great for me—a good learning curve for me, um, getting a bit of an insight into your research. You know, well, thank you for having me. No, it's it's been been a lot of fun.